Amen. What factors in your life, your Christian life, if you had to step back, put your Christian, bless you, bless you, Keith, that was a good one. Um, if you had to step back from your Christian life and, and put it into a pie chart and say, what were the factors that really caused me to grow as a Christian, to really grow as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, what would be the spikes? You know, what would be the things where, like, man, when I hit this point in my life, I really grew. I really began to, to deepen my understanding of the grace of God and, and grow. Sometimes it's good to sit, step back and think about those things. And I'll, I'll tell you without even hesitation, I'll tell you what that was for me. The things in my life that, that really caused me to grow were people that had been swimming in deeper grace than I had yet swam in who took the time to lead me and guide me and set an example for me of what that actually looked like. You could say, really, the things in my life that, that really drew me into maturity and to grow were people choosing or, or, or being willing to mentor me, to come alongside me in the place that I was at and to lead me to deeper waters. Three different um, spikes, if you will, in my, my Christian growth, and I'm still so in process. I have so much to do. I still need so much. But three different spikes that I think of in my life. The first one was my youth pastor, John Crevel, uh, an amazing man that, that I served alongside of right after I got saved. I grew up going to his youth group as a non-Christian, and then when I got saved, he, he allowed me to be one of the leaders in the church. And I just remember late nights talking to John in his car, giving me a ride home, long conversations about the things of the Lord, and he graciously let me talk about all the stuff that really matters to a high schooler. And when you're 35, you're like, why? But he was never condescending. He was always kind. He was always compassionate. And what I learned from John was I learned what it looked like to make Jesus the center of your life. I learned a lot from that man. And then some years later, uh, I, I found a group, a couple guys in particular, uh, from a church up in this area and, and I actually bumped into these guys street witnessing, and I, I, got, I thought they were insane. I thought they were drunk. I mean, they were, they were so excited, and I'm like, there's something wrong with you guys because I've never met anyone that's that excited about Jesus. There, mu there must be something wrong with you. And uh, we stayed, and we talked to them a little bit more, and we ended up becoming friends and started to build a relationship, and then they started driving down to Wairika, where I lived at the time, and, and staying uh, the night down there and interacting with us and coming to this college group I was leading at the time. And, and these guys were like nothing I'd ever seen. Like the, everywhere they went, their Bible was with them. And every time we'd sit at a table, the Bible would come out, which you would think would be kind of annoying if it was like contrived or legalistic. But these, these guys just loved Jesus. It's just all they wanted to talk about. It was like all we did talk about. And it was the craziest thing. I thought, man, if I could have a relationship with God like those guys, that would be amazing. And so what happened was they drew me up. They brought me into these deeper, this deeper ocean of grace that I had not yet experienced how good God was and how good his word was. And I ended up moving up and working at the church that they were going to and having a great season there. And then some years later, I think about the next uh, mentor, the next person in my life that drew me into deeper grace. It was, it was my good friend Jeremy Neff, who's an elder here at this church. And, and, and I worked in the office next to him, and we pastored together. And I would listen to how he interacted with people. And I would sit in his chair, and he would listen to me talk about ridiculous things. And, and he would kindly and graciously show me how ridiculous I was at times. Uh, but he would listen, right? And this, this man drew me deeper and, and helped me shape what it looks like to be a pastor and what it looks like to follow. What's, what's my point? My point is that we need these people in our lives. 
And we need to be these people in others' lives. This is the mechanism, this is the design feature that Jesus made for the growth of his church. You could call it discipleship, but that word tends to scare people a little bit because they're like, well, I ain't Jesus, so I'm not going to, that's too crazy. So we're going to use the word mentorship. And we can, we, 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 we can probably pull that down now. Um, we're in a series right now called Practice Makes Perfect. We've put that up. Um, Practice Makes Perfect is a three-week series. We're pausing from the book of Mark. So if you're joining us this morning, we're just taking a three-week hiatus. We'll be back in Mark next week. And we're talking about this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. I want to read a quote for you really quick that was sent to me this week um, by Martin and Catherine. I thought it was so good uh, by D.A. Carson. This is really why we're doing this series. Let me just read this. Uh, to you. Carson says this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Ouch. This, this, this quote really stuck with me. This is exactly why we're looking at the practices of Jesus, because here's the problem. Here's the false dichotomy that we've created oftentimes. We think, well, there's no work in salvation, because I can't work for my salvation, so therefore there's no work in salvation. Is that true? No. There's no working for your salvation, but there is work to realize the fullness and the richness and the deepness of the salvation that has been given to you by God's grace. And oftentimes we're fooling ourselves and thinking that now that we're saved, we'll just sort of passively float through this world. There is no passivity. It takes work to grow. It takes practice. And God's goal in you, Christian believer, is to grow you up into what you already are which is a perfect, finished, glorified being positionally in heaven. Okay, if I were to give my son the shirt off my back, size XL tall from Eddie Bauer, um, he's six years old. I have to wear tall because it's a freakishly long torso. Okay, if I give it to my son and I said, here, buddy, this is your shirt. Okay, he didn't, I, I gave him the shirt. The shirt belongs to him. It's his shirt. Now what? Now he's going to grow up to where he can actually fit in it. And that's kind of how grace works. You know, God gives us positionally. He gives us his shirt. He says, you're my kid. Take it. And then we got to work to grow up into it. we got to work. Think about David, the king, right? He was crowned as the king when he was just a, a little nobody brother that, that, that was insignificant. And then it took him years to actually obtain the place that he'd already been given, the position that he'd already been given. So this series is about how do we practically practice the way of Jesus? You know, we're called to have faith in Jesus. Listen, we're called to have faith in Jesus we're also called to have the faith of Jesus. We're called to have faith in Jesus, and we're called to practice the faith of Jesus, and it takes practice. So this is the purpose of this series. The word disciple means disciplined one. Did you know that? Disciple means disciplined one. We are disciples, and this is the goal. Now, for our third and final sermon in this series, we're going to talk about the practice of mentorship. The practice of mentorship. Why are we going to talk about this? Because we need it. 
because we need it. I think it's one of the, when I, when I step back and I look at the state of the Western evangelical church and I ask, what's the deficit? Where are we missing it? What's the big, the big, big hole? I think this is one of the biggest holes right now. An absence of mentorship, an absence of real authentic discipleship, an absence of those who have walked with Jesus taking ownership and leading those who have not walked with Jesus as long. If this is something we could instill into this church, we will become healthy. And that's the goal, by the way. The goal is not to get big, it's to get healthy. And healthy sheep reproduce, as it's been said before, right? This is the goal. So we're going to talk about mentorship today. Hopefully you're ready to dive into this subject with me. We're going to look at it in two sections. The first section is the case for membership. Not membership. Whoa, that's a different thing. The case. <laughs> Pastor Ryan's like, dude, we didn't talk about mentorship. Or we didn't talk about membership. Oh, no. Mentorship. The case for mentorship. And then we're going to talk about the call to mentorships. The case for mentorship, the call to mentorship. I'm going to try to get really per specific and practical what I'm actually asking you to do in the weeks to come as we practice this as a church. So first, the case for membership. Now, we would all agree, hopefully, that as a Christian, what, did I miss something? What, my fly down? I said membership again? (laughs) You know, it's scary how many times I do stuff like that and I don't even know, and you guys just graciously never tell me. Thank you. uh, Thank you for being so nice to me. I appreciate it. Um, Okay, mentorship. Okay, just, yeah, just, if I say membership, you know what I mean, okay? You don't have to snicker, okay? The case for mentorship, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that first. So we all know as Christians, and follow me, we all know as Christians that we are called to give our lives away to Jesus, right? That's the call. The call is to come and to follow him. Jesus said that, that you need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. We're going to talk about that next week, actually. The question is, what exactly are we to give our lives away to? What do we get to give our lives away to? There's plenty of things in the world that, that are good things to give our lives away to, right? We could give our lives away to world peace. We could give our lives away to curing hunger. We could give our lives away to, you know, pursuing uh, justice or, or however you define that word or whatever it is that you want to do. But Jesus gave us a very specific way to give our lives away. And he both modeled it and mandated it. Okay? He modeled it by the way that he lived his three-year ministry. What did Jesus spend the majority of his time doing as a rabbi? Teaching. Teaching, in particular, 12 dudes. Okay? And some ladies, too, actually. Okay? The ladies were around. They sat at the feet of Jesus. They learned. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And he spent the majority of his time modeling for us what it looks like to shape the life and the thinking of people. He did that intentionally. When you read the Gospels, uh, there's certainly theology in there, but what you see mostly is you see Jesus' interaction with these men and with these 12 and with these crowds and how he was constantly trying to shape them. He, met, he modeled it for us. He also mandated it for us in the Great Commission, which is probably one of the most important pieces of Scripture you could ever understand, by the way, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Jesus basically gives his marching orders to the church after he heads up to be at the right hand of the Father. Big deal. It's important, Okay. He says, hey, listen, here's what I want you to do. He says, go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. He doesn't say, go, therefore, and make programs. He doesn't say, go, therefore, and get a bunch of people in a room. He doesn't go, go, therefore, and cure world hunger. He doesn't say, go, therefore, and... Not that those are bad things. He says, go what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is important. This is seminal. This is, this is central to the focus and the direction of Jesus for his church. He released these guys and all of us subsequently to go do the work of mentorship, the work of apostle or the work of apprenticeship, the work of discipleship. What is apprenticeship, and really, by the way, Jesus was, an, they, were, they were apprenticed Jesus, and he said, now go do the same thing. He released these guys to go make significant, intentional investments in the life and formation of believers. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but that's not for everybody, and that's where you would be wrong. It is for every Christian. Every Christian has a mandate to go and to make disciples. You notice this is the great what, co-mission? It's a community mission. It's every Christian is called into this co-mission. It's a collaborative mission. Otherwise, I would have just called it the great mission. It's the co-mission. And that's why we believe the local church is the primary way where this happens because it's a community of Christ-following believers in which people are discipled primarily. People are discipled within a healthy family, church environment, a local church environment where we are communally discipling and forming people into the image of Christ. This was the marching orders of Jesus. Now, one of the great repeat victories of Satan uh, against the church has been to create this codependent relationship between paid ministers and congregants. What do I mean by that? When I say codependent, I mean that we've created a lot of environments where the church says, no, we pay those guys to make disciples. Our job is to come and sit. That's what we do, right? And it actually works out really great because insecure pastors or ministry leaders that really want to feel like they're important and everyone needs them feed off of that. And that's how it comes, this unhealthy codependent relationship. You guys come, let me do the stuff. Um, You just come and I'll feel good about myself. And then you guys don't have to do anything. It's not the first time that's happened, by the way. This happened in Roman Catholicism, where the cloth became this, only the holy people, only the the vocational ministers could do the ministry. And we sort of pay them, we pay the church to do the work for us. This was not the vision of Christ. The vision of Christ for his church was that every believer would be building up the church simultaneously. Kingdom of priests, are you with me? Let me read it for you. This is one of my most... Uh, This is, I think, one of the most important passages on what a church is supposed to be. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And Jesus gave the apostles, Paul reminds us, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Who were they? They're church leaders. The church leadership, okay? He gave the church leadership, verse 12, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the point? The point is, it's not the leadership's job of the church to do the ministry. What's their job? Their job is to train the church to do the ministry. Do you see that? Do you see what he says? It's their job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's a very different nuance. It changes the way you think about what a church exists to be. It it changes the way that you think about what my job is and what the elders' jobs are and what the church leadership's job is. It's not to provide all the ministry. It's to train the church to minister to one another. It's a pretty big paradigm shift. When leaders act like they're players, 
in the game instead of coaches, then congregants assume that they're spectators. Okay, let me say that again. When leaders act like players instead of coaches, then congregants assume they are spectators. There's already people on the field playing, so my job must be to sit in the foreground or in the background and to watch the game happen. Okay, that's actually not Jesus' design for the church. Gatherings, church gatherings, should look more like training centers and less like convention centers. They should look, uh, churches should look more like gyms and fitness centers, and I don't mean physically, okay? Some of you are like, uh? uh some of you are like, yeah. Levi, Levi's like, yeah! Okay, yeah. <laughs> Bench press for Jesus! Okay. Uh, Churches should look more like gyms and fitness centers, not malls and movie theaters. I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but one of my biggest pet peeves is when a church feels like a movie theater. You come in, it's dark, you can't see anybody, it's not set up to have any conversation, it's just slanted, and you just are supposed to sit and watch and then leave, right? Okay, churches aren't movie theaters. They're, they're a place to be trained to learn how to minister to one another. And this is a huge, huge piece of the DNA of Philippi Church. If you're visiting us this morning, you got to know this is huge. We exist not to create an environment of consumer, but an environment of training. That's why Sundays, most times, we have you turn your chairs and actually minister to each other. Because we want to create safe spaces where you can preach the gospel to each other. Where you can encourage each other and build each other up. Because that's what the New Testament says to do. Now, what does this have to do with mentorship? Here's where we've missed it. I think the reason that we have uh, an absence, a stark absence of mentorship in the local church in the West is because we haven't empowered it. We haven't trained for it. We haven't encouraged it. We haven't asked for it. We've sort of let the church leadership do the majority of this. And in fact, many of you guys in here are more capable, are more able, have more to offer in terms of mentorship, leadership, discipleship, wisdom than I do by far. There are people in this room that I want to be mentored by. There's people in this room that you should want to be mentored by. And so I want to get a little bit more into what I mean by that. So I'm going to talk to two different groups of people here this morning. I'm going to talk to those that I think should be pursuing mentorship, like they want to be mentored. We'll call them the mentee. Okay, And that's everybody in here, by the way. I don't care how old you are. Everybody in here should be thinking about who can I learn from. And then I want to turn and talk to the potential mentors. So those that are maybe considering stepping in or asking someone to mentor them or disciple them or lead them or, or speak into their life. And then I'll speak to those who are considering being that role. So first, let me talk to those who are considering or should hopefully be considering being discipled, being mentored. Proverbs 1, 5, and 7 says this. It says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, not to put it too sharply, but if we're not pursuing wisdom, and not just wisdom, but instruction, we're being foolish. We're being foolish. Any of us that have ever tried to progress at something, uh, musical instruments, um, a lot of you guys do theater, a lot of you guys have done sports in school, we've got quite a diverse group of people in here, whatever it was, whatever your craft was, whatever your thing was, okay, the reality is until you have someone from the outside giving you perspective on what you need to do, you're not going to progress. Okay, I remember uh, I picked up snowboarding four or five years ago, and I'd never done it before, and I was like 
classic millennial. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what no one's ever thought to do. I'm going to get on YouTube before I hit the slopes, and I'm going to watch all these videos, and then as soon as I strap on my bindings, I'm going to kill it. I'm just going to, I'm going to be awesome, right? So I did. I watched like three hours. Like, this is how you get on the lift. This is how you get off the lift. This is so, you know. And I got out there like pretty confident, and I was terrible. It was terrible. And I had a buddy who was with me. He was really good. And he graciously, kindly watched me do backflips down the hill all day long. And he just gave me little pointers. He's like, hey, man, you need to calm down. You need to relax. You need to, you need to go a little faster. You need to not go back so far on your heels. You know, you need, to, you need to lean a little more into your turn. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. Thanks, thanks, thanks. YouTube just didn't help me at all in that moment. I needed somebody to step in with perspective, somebody to step in with uh, experience, to spe- step in with clarity. I remember one time I was trying to learn how to play drums, and uh, there was this, there's this one thing of musicians, Jeremy, you'll, you know this, you know, you got to learn how to make this thing do a different thing than this thing, right? And, and, and it's really hard, like pat your belly, rub your head, or whatever uh, kind of a deal. And I was in Guitar Center, and I couldn't figure out how to make the hi-hat do a different thing than the foot. And I was in there trying to be cool like people do in Guitar Center, playing double bass and just being loud and annoying, and everybody was looking at me like, oh, another guy that thinks he's good. And I was terrible, right? And this, this older gentleman walked up, and he said, hey, man, I just noticed you're playing the drums. Can I, can I, can I give you a couple pointers? I was like, Yeah. He's like, no, I didn't, I didn't heard this play, guy play in my life. didn't matter. He was like, try this. He just gave me a couple little tweaks. He's like, try thinking about lifting up instead of down when it, you hit this one note. And try, try, not, try, try not to play so loud, man. Like, what are you trying to prove, you know? <laughs> I was like, you know, everyone, my mom says that too. I don't know why. <laughs> and he told me, and it worked. It was crazy. It, what, what was happening in that moment? What happened was someone came in with perspective into my life and spoke into my life and gave me coaching. And it was helpful. Here's what we need. We need someone not just to look at our, our product. We need someone to look more at our process, okay? Oftentimes, people only measure us based on our product, okay? Uh, yeah, did your company do well? Great, good job. Did you, did, is your marriage healthy? Cool, good job. Is your marriage not healthy? Is your business failing? You know, good job. Product, product, product. What we need is we need people to come into our life and look at the process and to say, you know, I, I'm not so concerned about your product. I'm concerned about the way you're doing it. Because the way you're doing it is almost more important than what it actually ends up being. So we need people in our life that are concerned with our process, not just, not just sort of mom in the stands. It's like, good job, Billy. You know, you ran the race. You, you, no, we need someone to be a coach, to, someone to come down and, and, to, and to say, hey, look, there's a few things you're doing here that you could be tweaking. And if we think about Christianity as just mental ascent, just sort of saying, yep, I'm a Christian, okay, then that doesn't make any sense. But if we think about Christianity as a practice, as something we learn, something we grow into, something that, that we actually have to work at, then what does that mean? It means we need coaches. It means we need coaches. Now, let me break down some of the misconceptions uh, about, about what you're probably thinking about Christian mentors, because I think there's some roadblocks that keep people from pursuing this, and I want to try to break those down a little bit. The first one is this. Here's the thing. You don't need the idea of someone Okay, the idea of someone on the other end of a screen. You need the reality of someone on the other end of a table. Okay, you don't need the idea of someone on the other end of a screen. You need the reality of a human with skin on on the other side of the table. We have been fooled, those of us that have these things, we have been fooled into thinking that we have mentors. They're not your mentors. Okay, they offer information, but they can't necessarily offer transformation. 
Okay, they have content. That's great. But what you need is not just content. You need coaching. A lot of us, we have people we listen to online. I'm thankful for that. That's important. That's good. Okay, a lot of young, it's the, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon is interesting to me. A lot of young men right now are very interested in listening to Jordan Peterson. Fine. Okay, but you don't need Jordan Peterson. You need a human with skin on. Yeah, Jordan Peterson's profound. Great. You need someone to sit across the table with you and ask you hard questions. You need someone to sit across the table from you and actually listen in your life. We don't just need the idea. And oftentimes, the idea of someone keeps us from the reality of someone. Because we're waiting for this perfect idea that's just really not real. We need coaching, not content. We need insight, not intellect. We need, uh, we need, the, the prof- we not just, we need not just the profound, we need the prophetic. In other words, we need someone to speak into our life, not just say profound things. And here's a, an important one. We need illumination, not just information. Okay? Uh, we can get information online. And I think this is why a lot of older uh, people in the church feel displaced. Like, nobody wants my information. Spent 30 years learning how to fix cars. Nobody calls me and asks how to fix cars, right? They just go on YouTube. But there's a difference between information and illumination. What I'm talking about this morning isn't just information, someone to go ask questions about stuff. I'm talking about someone to look into your soul, to help you think about your process and how maybe you're following Jesus in a wrong way. We, you know, for a lot of years, I I was frustrated because I, I asked the wrong people to mentor me and they said no. It's kind of weird. I look, I look back, there were certain men that were pastors of larger churches. I asked them to mentor me, and they flat out told me no. And I just was like, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you do that? And I realized I was asking the wrong people. I was asking the people that I thought were something they weren't instead of the people that were actually willing and available. I wanted the guy who was sitting in front of 3,000 people. I wanted him to mentor me. Well, he doesn't have time to mentor me. There's some dude sitting behind me that's got a whole life full of wisdom following Jesus. He's the one I should be talking to. I've asked the wrong people. That's what I've largely found in my life. We need, listen, we need to stop looking for someone who is exactly who you want to become or someone exactly like you, and you need to look for someone just a few steps ahead with an outside perspective. Okay, when I go, uh, when I go backpacking sometimes and I'm going up the hill and I'm going to a lake that I haven't been, sometimes hikers will be coming out. So we're going in and they're coming out. And oftentimes I say things like this to them, like, hey, how much further? How many more ridges? How many people are camping in there? Are we going to get a spot? You know, is it smoky in the bowl? That's the thing now, right? Is, is it smoky up there? Oh, is every summer. Now, I, those guys don't need to be professionals. They don't need to be experts. They've just been to the lake. That's all I need. Like, you've been to the lake before. Can you tell me what the trail's like? Just, just, just give me some insight. That's really what we're looking for. One of my favorite examples of mentorship in the Bible is, is uh, Jethro and Moses. You're saying, who is Jethro? Exactly. Right? Exactly. He's not a big deal in the Old Testament. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. Okay? He was Moses' father-in-law. And there's this point in Exodus where Moses, you know, um, he, he's kind of like new to this whole like I'm the prophet thing and I'm the only one that gets to talk to God thing. And, uh, and so all of, of Israel's like, hey, he's the only one that gets to talk to God, so he's the only one we can talk to. And he's making all these decisions and he's bottlenecking really the, 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 the health and the forward movement of the theocracy. And so Jethro, this wise father-in-law, pulls Moses aside and he says, hey, buddy, you need to get some, some guys that you trust and you need to give away some authority. Like you need to let these guys make decisions. Now, Moses could have been like, bro, you don't know anything about being a prophet. You don't know anything about leading millions of people in the wilderness, right? You don't know anything about that. What do you know? 
Jethro knew enough to know that there is a grace in limitations. How do you learn that? The hard way. You learn that through life. Jethro didn't have to run all of Israel. He didn't have to be the only one who learned the, the, the true name of God, Yahweh, in order to be able to give that wisdom. Buddy, you got to calm down. you got to get some people to help you. Yeah, it was just a kind and a gracious thing. And Moses received it. My point is, is that you don't need someone that does exactly what you do. You don't need someone that's walked exactly in your shoes. You don't need someone that has carried a more heavy load than you have. You just need someone that's up the trail. That, that is going to remind you of the grace of God. That's what you're looking for. We need to stop trying to find all of Jesus in one person and find some of Jesus in multiple persons. Some of you guys, what's keeping you from learning from others in the faith is that you think, well, I haven't seen anyone that's the full deal yet. Still waiting for Jesus to walk in. Keep waiting. Okay? There's only one Jesus, and none of us are him. But every one of us can together form the mosaic of Jesus because each of us possess some of his attributes. So what I would recommend is I would say, who, you look around the room and say, who's a good dad? Who's a godly, not just who's a good dad, who's a godly dad? You know, Ryan last week unpacked that idea of godliness. Who, who's fathering in a way, who's mothering in a way that is so Jesus-like? I want to go learn from that. That's what I'm calling each other to. I said it before, but... Jesus would have left one person in charge of discipleship if he didn't intend the whole church to do it. But that's not what he did. He left a body to be his body because it takes a whole church. That's why you need the church. That's why watching YouTube videos and listening to sermons online is not church. You need the church. You need the body. The multiplicity and the, the, the um, he, he, homogenous, homogenous uh, church that has all of these different parts and all these different giftings. One more thing to those who are considering being mentored. You need to stop waiting to be asked. You need to stop waiting to be asked. Any self-respecting, godly, humble man or woman who's walked a few more years than you is not going to come along and say, hey, buddy, I'm going to mentor you. Like, no, that's, no one's going to do that. You got to ask them. And a lot of us are just waiting. We're like, yeah, I'm waiting for someone to come along and just say, hey, I'd like to be someone in your life that could speak in, you know. And you, you got to ask them. You got to pursue them. Now, let me speak to those who, who are maybe um, thinking about being a mentor or thinking about discipling in some way. And this is where Titus 2 comes in. So I told you 20 minutes, I'd meet you there. Titus 2. Titus 2. You guys good? Everybody awake? Okay. Titus 2 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, and love, and in steadfastness. Okay. In other words, your ministry, this is important, your ministry flows out of who you are, not what you do. Your ministry flows out of who you are. Uh, ministry starts with character. That's why the qualifications of an elder are so steep. Okay, you, you need to be an example before you can tell somebody what to do. He's saying, older men, you need to be an example. And then he says, older women, in verse 3, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Uh, they are to, you know, wine and gossip, right? Those are bad combination. Uh, they are to teach what is good, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, 
Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to me a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Now, what do we learn from this? The first thing we learn uh, is who is to be doing the mentoring or the discipling, the older men and the older women. Now, stop, because when you read that, I know what you're picturing. You're picturing a 75-year-old guy or a 75 or an 80-year-old gal that's got it all figured out. And can sit down with you like Eugene Peterson or John Piper or something and just spout off all this stuff. These older, like, why? That's, that's, that's really not what he's talking about here. Well, how do I know that? Well, because Paul was talking to churches that really had been planted in single-digit years. So we're talking about people that are older in the faith. How much older? Well, maybe five years. Maybe 10 years. One of the things in the church is we wait. We're like, yeah, when, I'm, when I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years, then I'll start to maybe be a resource to people who are younger in the faith. 30 years? I mean, most of the apostles were dead. These guys, the, you know, th- these guys would start right away. You've been walking with Jesus for a couple years? Man, you're, you're mature. It's time to go. It's this prolonged adolescence that we deal with with our kids, right? Like, like 25 is the new 13, you know? Um, it's the same thing in the church. It's like, how long do we have to wait? How long do we have to follow Jesus before we start offering the resources that we've been given? So what does this actually look like? Well, according to Titus 2, it looks like teaching men and women, younger men and women, to obey, uh, same thing Jesus said, discipleship was, to rightly orient your life around Jesus and his words. Okay, it's the same as the Great Commission. Now, what I want you to see here is that it's character-facing. Much of mentorship that we see, if you Google mentorship in in the Google, uh, you're going to find all kinds of stuff about how to make you a better person, how to go farther, how to extend your business, how to whatever. But here, Titus is saying it's, it's more about character. It's about how do we build godly character into people. Now, here's where you're not going to like me, okay? Here's what you need to recognize. And this is what is keeping many of you from stepping into a role of a mentor in someone's life. You need to recognize that what you want to give someone else And what you feel comfortable giving is not what believers want or what they need. And that's probably why some of you who would like to be mentoring aren't. Here's what I mean. I'm calling it the expert expectation. Many of us have this idea that to mentor or to disciple or to be an influence in someone's life, I am the expert. And what this means is that I'm going to sit down with you across from a table and you're going to ask me questions and I'm going to exude wisdom. And I'm going to tell you all the right things to do because I've done all the right things. I would actually tell you that's not really Christian mentorship. If you come with that approach, it's going to do one of two things. Either it's going to make you a terrible listener because you're just going to sit there waiting to tell them what to do. And you're going to impose your life into the story and assume that their life is your life. And you're going to say a lot of things like, well, you just need to do this because this is what I did. If you just do this, it'll help you. And if you just do that, it'll help you. And you're going to crush that person. You're going you're gonna to belittle their struggles. You're going to patronize their pain. Or the other side of that coin is you're going to feel like the standard is so high to be the expert that you're not going to actually be willing to sit down with anybody. So let me suggest a different approach. Let me suggest a different approach. We often picture mentorship as sitting in the place of the expert, giving profound and pointed advice about something we've succeeded at. You know, So maybe your thing is, I hung drywall for 40 years. I'd love to sit down and talk about drywall. Well, of course, because you're confident talking about drywall. 
You know, maybe you were a school teacher. Yeah, I, I taught school for 40 years. I'd love to sit down with somebody and give them all the things they should do about school teaching. Well, maybe, and maybe that's fine. But that's not what we need in this church, primarily. What we need is we need someone to listen. We need someone to help us be known. And we need someone to show us what it looks like to fail. That's actually what we need. This is where I think the disconnect is. Don't lose me here. I think the disconnect is, is that we have older people in the faith that are wanting to tell people what to do or to give practical wisdom. We have younger people in the faith that aren't really interested in that. What they really want is someone to sit down and talk about how messed up and broken they are and for that person to go, yeah, me too. In fact, I've been walking this out longer than you and God's grace is sufficient, I promise. And here's what it looks like to fail. Guys, that's so much harder to do than to sit in the expert seat and to say, well, I'm just tell you everything you do. Because that means you have to be vulnerable. It means you have to be open. My son, Justice, was, uh, you know, he's a little sinner like we all are, right? And uh, he had did something, I don't know, said something mean or something. And my wife was sitting and having a conversation with him about his heart like my wife does so well because she's a gospel practitioner. I love it. She's helping him understand sin, and she's walking through this. And my son is a very deep thinker. He's processing it all, and he goes, okay, yeah, I did sin. Sin's this thing. It lives in me. I need, to, I need to deal with it. I need to bring it to the cross. I need to believe the God. Okay, yeah. And he goes, does everyone sin? Like, I don't know, like pastors? Like, do pastors sin? <laughs> Strangely specific question he had, isn't it? Like, my wife's like, yeah, buddy, like pastors you know, they sin too. And you could just tell these little wheels are thinking, well, man, I sin. What's wrong with me? I got this problem. Does daddy have that? Here's the deal. I mean, every one of us want our kids. Every one of us want people to think that we're awesome. Every one of, every one of us want our kids to see our strengths and want to grow up and be like us. But let's just be real. What my son really needs, he doesn't need my strength. He needs my weakness. He needs to know, hey, buddy, your dad still struggles with sin. Your dad has been dealing with sin for almost 33 years. And buddy, I've made all the mistakes you're going to make. And can I just help you walk into grace? See, most dads, they don't think that way. Because it's this little sinful thing within you that wants your kid to think that you're perfect. And most parents, they just tell their kids what to do. Just stop that. Do what I did. Go to the school I went to. Take the job I went to. And it shuts down kids. And the same thing is true within the church. The same thing is true within mentor-mentee relationships. We don't need people to come in and tell us what we should have done or what we should be doing. We need people to come in and tell us how to swim in deeper grace. We need people to help us see how to apply the gospel, apply the grace of God to the deepest wounds of our life. That's what we need. And nobody really wants to do that, though, because that means that you have to air your sin. That means that you have to sit with someone who's 20 years younger with you than you and say, yeah, I struggled with that. I have struggled with that. Here's how God has led me graciously to victory in that area, or here's how I'm still struggling with that. That's much harder, but that is the picture that Jesus had in mind of a gospel community where each of us are sharing our weakness and speaking the gospel into each other's lives. One of my favorite verses on this, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5-8, I'll just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretense for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, <clears throat> whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, you know, we didn't want anything from you guys, Thessalonica, when we came into the town and told you the gospel and saw you get saved and began to disciple you. We didn't want anything from you. But, verse 7, we were gentle. We were gentle among you. 
We were ready to share. Now listen, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, which they certainly did, but also our own selves. We were ready to share our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Let me unpack what Paul means by our own selves. It means when Paul came into a city and he preached the gospel, Paul didn't stand on a podium and keep a distance and a separation from people. He shared his life. He shared his weakness. He shared his thorn in the flesh. He made tents. He spent time with people. He sat at the table just like his rabbi Jesus did because that's how Jesus ministered. He didn't minister with a stiff arm saying, yeah, you can't see my life. I just want you to see my strengths. You can't really know me. He invited people to see him. He shared of his own self. That's what people need. They need you to let him in and see the brokenness and the weakness. One of my favorite, favorite examples that Jeff Vandersell is a pastor up in Seattle. He gives, he, he said one time, he, had this, he said, we had this young guy living in our house and, uh, and, and, and he was, um, we're discipling him and my wife and I got in a fight and the kid was like sitting there and he kind of like stood up and started to like sneak out and Jeff said, hey, sit down. You need to see this. <laughs> you need to see what it looks like to fight with your wife in a godly, unsinful way, what it looks like to work through it, what it looks like to apply the gospel to the brokenness, to repent and ask forgiveness for the hard things we shouldn't have said. I love that. Is that what we think of when we think of mentorship? I mean, Jesus was with these guys all the time. They had meals together. Now, Jesus was without sin. We certainly are not, but Jesus certainly let them. You know why we know what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because he told his guys, hey, come here. I want, to see, I want you to see me on my knees, sweating drops of blood. That's how we know. Because he wanted his guys to see his weakness because he knew it was in his weakness that they would see what it looks like to depend on God. Are you willing to do that? We have to think about discipleship differently. We have to stop thinking discipleship is me looking perfect in front of you and telling you what to do. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's not what Paul did. It's not what Jesus did. What we need to do is we need to give Christians the gospel. That's what mentorship looks like. If you think that you need to give someone your expertise, you're never going to do that. Or they're just going to be annoyed with you. One of the other examples I think of in the Old Testament about mentorship, and we'll wrap it up. I think about Moses and Joshua. Moses was a mentor to Joshua. It says Joshua was a young man, right? He was the assistant to Moses. And you think, what, did, what was the main thing that Joshua learned from Moses? I mean, Joshua, Joshua was a successful military leader. He was, a, he was a good leader of the people. What did he learn from Moses? I'll tell you, I think the main thing he learned from Moses, we read about it in Exodus 33.10. Says, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, that is the presence of God in the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So Joshua is sitting here watching Moses, his mentor, stand face to face with God in the presence of the Lord. And when Moses turned again into the camp, so he's done, he's going to leave, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. What does that mean? Joshua's like, I'm good. I'm going to stay here in the presence of the Lord. You know what I think the main thing Joshua learned from his mentor was? The value of the presence of the Lord. Moses introduced Joshua to Yahweh. 
And I think that's why Joshua was a good leader. Not because Moses, you know, gave him a a 10-step curriculum and told him all the right things to do, but because he introduced him to God. He introduced him to the Lord. And that's really what we're called to do. Paul says to the Corinthians, he said, I'm glad that I didn't baptize any of you because there was all this sectarian fighting going on. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. He's like, was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. In 1 Corinthians 1.12, he says, uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul, his mentorship was to endear people's hearts, not to himself, but to the Christ. That's what he did. And if you see that as the goal, then you will do that. Our goal is not to endear people to us or our leadership or our wisdom or, or anything like that. Our job is to endear people's hearts to Christ, to the glory of Christ. That's what Paul did. So that's the case for mentorship. Now what do we do with that? Okay, in six minutes, let me give you the call to mentorship. This week, I want to challenge everyone here to prayerfully consider one person in your life that you can sit down with. And ask questions. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to magically create this amazing relationship where this person is, you know, your mentor for your entire life and, and they know everything about you and they sit down every week and, and ask you perfectly profound questions. God may give you that, I don't know. But I'm asking you to just take a step. I'm asking you to look around you, think who in my life is godly, who in my life swims in deeper grace than I do, who in my life is up the trail, who in my life has, has really had to believe the gospel for themselves a little bit longer than I have, And would they be willing to sit down with me and let me ask them questions about what it looks like to follow Jesus in this area? Would you consider doing that? Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's dinner. Maybe it's a couple. Is there an area in someone's life that you could invite to speak into your life? And I'm going to ask you to consider meeting with this person at least three times. Just three times. Because I think it's going to take you that many times to really get into some meat of things. So let me give you four ingredients. I think that if you deploy these four ingredients, I think you can have this this week and in the weeks to come. Four things. Clarity, relational equity, humility, and gospel centrality. Clarity, relational equity, humility, and gospel centrality. As you're thinking about building a relationship like this, and again, the, the ball is in the court of the person asking to be mentored, okay? Okay, it's your job to ask them. Think about these four things. First, clarity. Make it clear to the person why you're asking them to do this and what you're asking them to do. Okay? Because otherwise, they're not going to know. So it might go something like this. Hey, hey, man, I really respect, or hey, gal, I really respect the way that you raised your kids. I really respect the way that you seem to have this really just amazing relationship with the Lord. Could I, could I sit down with you for three weeks, just three times? Could we sit down three times? And could I come with questions? And could I ask you questions about that particular area? Just three times. I'll I'll write the questions. In fact, I'll even give you the questions in advance so that you have time to think about them. The other day I did a podcast back there in that room with a a personal, uh, somewhat of a mentor of my life, theologically, Rick Boya. And it was actually great because I called him. I said, hey, Rick, I respect the heck out of you. I want to share you with the church. Here's the questions. Would you come to a podcast with me? I gave him the questions. He had time to prepare. We sat down. I asked him the questions. And you know what? It was really good. It was really good. You guys should check it out. The clarity. The clarity is that you give them uh, an understanding of why you're asking them, what you're asking them for, and you're going to have questions ready for them uh, and and make it happen. So clarity, number one. Second, relational equity. Okay, relational equity. You need to spend at least one whole meeting just getting to know each other. Just say, hey, the first time, we're just going to sit down, we're going to share testimonies. 
I'm just going to tell you about me. You tell me about you. We get to know each other. And then in the other two, I'm going to have some questions for you that I'd like to learn about you. Humility. Number three, humility. Go into this knowing that you're both in process and that you both need to learn and that you're both in need of grace. Go into this striving to listen more than you talk, to ask questions more than you speak for both of you. I think it would be a really fruitful thing. And lastly, gospel centrality. You know, we have loads of relationships in our life that are about anything and everything other than Jesus. What we don't need is another relationship based around whatever, working out, uh, racquetball, whatever thing is. What we need is a relationship where the purpose of the relationship is to sit down and talk about the Lord. And I want you to, if you feel comfortable moving at the speed of trust, invite this person to ask you questions. Invite this person to, to, to maybe help you see something about yourself or your soul that you didn't even notice, didn't even realize. Would you guys be open to that? I think if, as a church, if we could begin to press into the life that is here within the church. I always say it, the secret weapon of the church is the church. It's the most underutilized, under-resourced facet of the church. We're so worried about getting bigger sound systems and bigger buildings that the, really the thing that grows Christians are Christians. Christians grow Christians. You guys need each other. Press into that. There are treasure troves of wisdom and godliness and, and years swimming in the grace of God that could be pressed into in this church. I just want to release you guys to do that. And then I would ask, if you have a cool experience, maybe let me know so I can share it with the church. So we can say, hey, you know what? This happened and this was cool and this was encouraging. You guys with me? All right, cool. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to turn you guys into some groups. We're going to have a little bit of dialogue uh, about what this could look like. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word on such things. And, Lord, I pray that now as we, as we just um, break into some groups and have a little bit of conversation, Lord, about this topic, Lord, that you would speak through each of us, that, Father, you would lead our conversation. God, that we wouldn't be nervous, that we wouldn't be worried about sounding smart or, or looking profound or about what group we're going to be in or any of that ridiculous stuff, Lord, that we would just enjoy having a conversation with people that love you about these things. So, Lord, Spirit, we invite you into this place, and we ask that you would lead us in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.